A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Hello, my friends. I am so thrilled to bring you this interview with Dr. Marshall Goldsmith. Marshall is a mentor of mine, and I flew to San Diego to capture this interview in his home. I'm very grateful to you, Marshall, for making the time and extending the invitation for me to do that. If you don't know Marshall, he is recognized as the world's number one leadership thinker. He's been recognized by Thinkers 50, Inc. Magazine, Wall Street Journal, The Economist, Forbes Magazine, Bloomberg, many others. He is a New York Times bestselling author. He has written or edited more than 41 books. Some of the books, if you've heard of him, that you might have heard of, include What Got You Here Won't Get You There, How Successful People Become Even More Successful. He's written a book called Triggers, Creating Behavior That Lasts, Becoming the Person You Want to Be, and another book called Mojo, How to Get It, How to Keep It, How to Get It Back If You Lose It. So Marshall's mission is simple. He helps successful people achieve positive, lasting change in behavior for themselves, their people, and their teams, which is no surprise that he is very clear about his ideal client. He coaches some of the world's leading CEOs, people who've led or are now leading organizations like Ford, Pfizer, GlaxoSmithKline, the World Bank, the Mayo Clinic, and on and on. His new book, which will be out later this year in 2020, is called The Earned Life. Marshall is a mentor of mine, and he accepted me into his MG100, which is something he created as a way to pay forward the lessons and experiences he's been blessed to have. Marshall is now, I think he's about 70 years old, and he's had some pretty incredible mentors himself, including Paul Hersey and Peter Drucker, so some of the greats of organizational behavioral change and leadership and management. And uh, for the MG100, as it's called, Marshall received more than 18,000 applications and chose just over 100 coaches, uh, selecting me as one of those for which I'll be eternally grateful. If you've listened to any of my other interviews, many of my guests have been some of the other coaches in that, but enough about that. I'll share with you a little bit more about Marshall before we get into the interview, but Marshall is a pioneer of coaching. He's been doing this work for more than 40 years. He is a pioneer in specifically the 360-degree feedback method. He's created his own model of coaching called stakeholder-centered coaching, something I'm certified in. It's amazing. It's unlike other modalities of coaching that I've found, particularly for leaders who are in organizations. So let me tell you a little bit about what we talk about in this interview. And by the way, his answer to my first question, what's life about? It's one of my all-time favorite answers. 
we discuss internal and external validation, how getting them mixed up can make us feel like an imposter or a victim, how to disentangle them, why they matter. He talks about if you're into coaching, this might be particularly useful, your biggest challenge as a coach, the biggest mistake that coaches make. And even if you're not a coach, some of these things can help you have a better insight about yourself and be a more effective leader. Marshall talks about why he made the decision years ago to only charge on a performance or results only basis. In other words, if his clients don't get better, he doesn't get paid. Would you be willing to do that? He shares some of the benefits that come to him from living that way, working that way. I ask him why it's so hard to achieve lasting change in behavior and how we can do so. And his response, as you would imagine, is pretty insightful. I ask him to share his philosophy of coaching, to talk about something he calls feed forward as opposed to feedback, an approach that can help you and the people around you get better without becoming defensive. We talk about why it's important when you're working to make change to let the people around you know that. I ask him to share what he learned from the week he spent at Plum Village, France with the legendary Buddhist teacher Thich Nhat Hanh. I also ask him to share about his daily question process, something I implemented in my life a few years ago after meeting Marshall that's given me more clarity and peace and that can help you be both more successful and feel more successful, which don't always go hand in hand, being and feeling successful. I ask him what advice he would give coaches or anyone who serves others and wants to get paid for it. His advice about branding and promoting yourself is solid. And then in the final portion of the interview, Marshall concludes with the best coaching advice you're ever going to get. That's what he says. I don't disagree with him. So with that, I'm really grateful to you for tuning in. I'm very grateful to you, Marshall. If you want to learn more about Marshall and his work or connect with him, you can visit marshallgoldsmith.com or the website 100coachesconsulting.com. With that, I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I enjoyed capturing it. Marshall, welcome to the School for Good Living. Very happy to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yes. Marshall, I want to start with my favorite question for Uber drivers. What's life about? Life. I look at my own life and ask why. And I think there's two key variables that impact what's important in life. One is uh, happiness, is love the process of what you're doing. You really enjoy it and you like waking up in the morning and you feel like, I like this process of doing it. And two is, is meaning. What I'm doing actually, I believe, matters to me. And the important thing in the answer is no one can find happiness for you but you. Yeah. No one can find meaning for you but you. And my daughter Kelly and I, she's a professor at Vanderbilt, we've done research on this. Our research is very clear. People who spend more hours of their life simultaneously achieving happiness and meaning are much more satisfied with their lives. And it actually doesn't work even if you just try to find happiness without meaning. For example, I'm 70 years old. I could play bad golf with old men at the country club while eating chicken salad sandwiches and discussing gallbladder surgery. That might be amusing, but there's no meaning. It's empty. At least for me, it would be very empty. On the other hand, if you find meaning without happiness, you're a victim or a martyr in life. So really, you need to achieve simultaneous happiness and meaning in life. And the more hours you can spend of your life doing that, the better your life is. That sounds so practical. <laughs> Straightforward. I wish I knew that in my 20s. <laughs> yeah. 
So when someone asks you who you are and what you do, or maybe when you're introduced from a stage, and I realize that might change from the context, person to person, place to place. How do you like to answer that question? Oh, I, I introduce myself the same way all the time. I say, my name is Marshall Goldsmith. I'm a, from a small town called Valley Station, Kentucky. I went to school in Indiana. I got a PhD at UCLA. I was a college professor and dean when I was young. And then for the last 42 years, I've done three things. One is I give talks or teach classes. So I travel all around the world speaking and teaching. I was just in Russia speaking for 50,000 people in a football stadium. So I travel all around the world speaking and teaching. I've been to 102 countries and I have 11 million frequent flyer miles just on American Airlines. So I love that the most. And what I'm most famous for is coaching executives. I've been the coach of the CEO of Ford and Pfizer and Glaxo and the World Bank, the Mayo Clinic. And what I love about coaching is not teaching, it's learning. Because I really learn so many things when I coach people. And then the other thing I do is I write and edit books and articles. So I've written or edited 41 books. My new book is called The Earned Life. is coming out pretty soon. I'm writing a book with Al Mulally called Stakeholder Centered Leadership. And I like writing or making videos or doing this podcast because it's a great way to reach people, yeah. to reach people. So those are the three elements of my life. Personally, I've been married for uh, 45 years. My wife's a psychologist. My daughter's a professor. Got a couple of grandkids. And my son lives in Austin and is an entrepreneur. So life is good. It is good. And Marshall, you've been married longer than I've been alive. <laughs> Congratulations on that. As a, someone who's on my second marriage, I know it's not always the easiest thing. Right. But so... I want to ask about this new book, The Earned Life. Okay. Tell me, who are you writing it for and what do you want it to do for them? Well, my new book, The Earned Life, I'm, first I'm writing it with Mark Ryder. Mark is my partner in writing. He's my agent and I'm co-writer. Co We've done three books together. What Got You Here Won't Get You There, Mojo, and Triggers, all New York Times bestsellers. He's a great agent a great writer. These three books are phenomenally well-written. Yeah. And like, by the way, somebody that's an agent, an editor, a co-writer, there's like a unicorn in the world of publishing. It is. I love this guy. And those books are incredibly well-written. And I can yeah. say this without bragging, I didn't write them, right? So he and I are doing our fourth book together called The Earned Life. And it really, it, it's into, I'll give you some of the components. One component, it starts with creating your own life. You see, in the past, we couldn't create our own lives. We all were brought up where we were. We stayed where we were. You were in a cave. You were in a small community. You probably did what your father and mother did. Women were in certain roles. You had sex roles. You had gender roles. You know, you were pretty much locked into a world. Today, we have choice. We can pretty much create our own life. And if you look at it, choice has a good side and a tough side. I mean, the good side of choice is, you know, you have choices. You can make decisions. The bad side is depression is an all-time high suicide, uh, drug abuse, deaths of despair. With choice comes regret. See, if you have no choice, you can't make a bad decision because you can't make any decision. Hmm. If you have choice, you can make a bad decision. With choice comes regret. With choice comes anxiety. So I'm going to talk about the blessing and curses of choice. And then the first part of the book is called Creating Your Own Life. How as we journey through life today, we have the opportunity to create our own life. What we're doing right now is not, not something that existed 40 years ago. You're creating your own life. Yeah. It wasn't here. Your life is a great example of someone who's basically creating your own life. You're not living someone else's life. You're creating a life of your own. I'm creating my own life. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm an extreme example of creating my own life. Yeah, absolutely. And for many years, I, I, I didn't realize that I wasn't living my own life. Yes. But in retrospect, and at the time, even at the time, I wasn't aware that I wasn't happy. But 
in retrospect, especially, and by comparison with today, I realize now I was deeply unhappy. Yeah. Yeah. So I, and we're going to talk about creating your own life. Then the second part of the book is called Earning the Life You Create. And what happens is I've interviewed the uh, NFL, for example, National Football League, a disaster story. Something like half the people are bankrupt within five years after they quit. 90% are divorced. They have all kinds of drug and alcohol problems. Basketball, not as bad, but not good. Uh, it's hard to be a used to be. And you kind of, uh, the great Western disease is I'll be happy when, when I get the money status BMW, when I win the Super Bowl. Well, say you win the Super Bowl. Well, that's nice. Yeah. But what happens then? Right. You're Joe Namath, and you're talking about Super Bowl three, 50 years after the fact. I mean, yeah. you know, there's nothing there. Yeah. And we, some of my kids' friends have already forgotten players like Michael Jordan. Yeah. I mean, they know the Jumpman logo, but they I don't think they realize that was a real athlete. That's a real <laughs> Once upon a time. Oh, yeah. And so what happens is I'm going to talk about the importance of as we journey through life, the constant reinvention of life. I think you've met Dr. Jim Kim, yeah. who's one of our 100 coaches. And he, if anyone you think, could coast on his laurels. I mean, he's probably literally saved 10 million lives. He's uh, just done so much in his life, president of World Bank. But he always said, I'm creating a new legacy every day. Every day it's a new legacy. It's a healthy way to look at living. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about first creating your own life and then second earning the life you create. Because what happens is you can't buy respect. You can't buy love. Yeah. And what happens with these athletes is uh, Evander Holyfield. He made $250 million boxing. It's hard now, to fathom. It's broke. Wow. Even harder to fathom. Yeah, so, well, <laughs> and a lot of it, I've interviewed these people I mean, some of it, you know, drugs, alcohol, showing off, big houses. A lot of they just give the money away. Mm. People say, look, you're rich. Give me $10,000, $20,000. i am your cousin. One day you look up, there's nothing left. They try to buy love. And so it's a real interesting. I'm going to talk about the importance of you can't buy love. You can't buy respect. And no matter what you achieve in life, you need to look at life and say, how can I earn today? And we don't think about things like earning happiness and meaning. But happiness is really also much more of a choice. People that try to be happy are happier. People that try to find meaning are more likely to find meaning. And a lot of it is just, did you try? Right. Yeah. Did you earn it? Yeah. I, that's one thing I've learned in, in my life is any strategy tends to be no strategy at all. But happiness is one that seems to me a bit of a paradox where sometimes I think people who strive for happiness actually miss it. And I don't know if that's maybe because they're pursuing it in ways that are ultimately hollow. Yeah, or... I think that's it. If you try to find happiness through material possessions or buying something or winning something. Or looking good. or look, You're not going to find it. Yeah. Or impressing others. You're not going to find it. Right. And at the end of the day... Uh, that can only come from the inside. Mm. Now, uh, philosophically, I'm a Buddhist, and, and Buddha basically said that, you know, he, he was brought up rich. And his father tried to make him happy by constantly protecting him and giving him more. And then he was able to sneak out of the castle three times. He learned you get old, you get sick, and you die. He said, you can't be happy with more. Then he said, well, I'll try to be happy with less. He starved himself, tried to get rid of all material possessions, still wasn't happy. Well, he learned you can't be happy with less. Finally, you ultimately need to be happy with what you have and where you are. It sounds easy. <laughs> I mean, it's simple. It sounds simple, it's I should say. It's very non-Western. The yeah. reason it's very hard for a Western person to understand is the Western interpretation of this is, he just said, I need to be happy all the time. 
That's the opposite of what I said. There's only one second you need to learn to be happy, and it's now. Mm-hmm. Not all the time. Because you get focused on all the time. You're focused on an illusion that's out there and one day and all that stuff. As opposed to saying, no, I, I, I need to make peace with now. Find meaning now. Be happy now. Make this count. Not that other time out there, which may or may not ever happen. Yeah. So is this part of earning the life you've created, learning to be happy now? Yeah. And it's also realizing that every day it's not going to come from I won the Super Bowl or I won the Academy Award or I got named top executive coach in the world. That doesn't do it. Yeah. You start over. Twice. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, for a long time. I was twice the number one leadership thinker in the world. That's, I was number one executive coach in the world forever. And and I understand now, by the way, that you've kind of bequeathed that title to Mark Thompson. Well, what happened is they have something called the Thinker's 50. Yeah. And the Thinker's 50 is the top 50 business thinkers. Now they have something called the Hall of Fame, mm. which is really good for me. So I'm no longer in the contest. I'm in the, quote, Hall of Fame, which means I don't get ranked anymore. Huh. So they had a thing this year where they had the top executive coach in the world is given an award called the, the Marshall Goldsmith Award. Actually, the winner of that award was Sun Yen Shang. Wow. And you know, it was very moving. And Mark Thompson won a different award for CEO coach. And then Carol was, I think, leadership coach. And Sun Yen won. And so various people won different awards. But the good news is now I'm no longer competing. <laughs> You're in the Hall of Fame. Congrats I, on that. I'm giving out the awards. Yeah, I'm, that's awesome. The awards are named after me. Yeah, that's <laughs> I'm not great. competing for an award that's named after me. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's great. Well, take, take me back to the other parts of this book, if you will. Well, I think, you know, important thing for the reader is to really spend time and effort thinking, I have an opportunity to create my own life. What do I want it to be? Let me give an example. One of my coaching clients was CEO of a large company, and they had a rule he had to retire at 61 or something. So he knew he had to leave, right? And I talked to him six months before, and I said, you know, if you knew the entire company was going to change in six months with new customers, new everything, would you plan for it? He said, well, of course, I'm a responsible CEO. I said, well, okay, your life is going to totally change in six months. How much planning have you done for that? He said, almost none. I said, what's more important, the company or your life? Well, it is amazing. A lot of people spend more time planning their vacation than planning their lives. So the first part of this is really thinking about you have an opportunity to create your own life. It doesn't create itself. How can you spend the time and energy and think about who do I want to be? What's going to bring me happiness? What is the life I want to create? And then also dealing, we're going to talk later with marketing, with the realities of the market. Yeah. Because it's hard out there. And you have to balance what you want with what the market is and say, okay, how can I realistically live a great life? And then again, how can I earn this life I create? We're also going to talk about internal and external validation. Would you like me to talk about that now? Yeah, let's go there. The common self-help book says, don't worry about what other people think. It's all just, what do you think about yourself? Very bad advice. There's two terms, internal validation and external validation. And here's the problem. Then this is a huge problem that literally millions of people have. We confuse internal and external validation, and we think they should have a one-to-one correlation, which leads to all kinds of problems. The major problem is the victim. The victim feels like, well, it's not fair. I did this great work, and the world is not recognizing my achievements. Well, again, the problem there is they're confusing internal validation. I feel great about what I'm doing, which is good. 
with external validation, the world cares, which is totally different. They're confusing these two terms. And I see so many people do this. The first problem is the victim problem. The other reality is 70% of all of us think we're in the top 10% of our professional peer group, 82% believe we're in the top 20, and 98.5% believe we're in the top half. Well, the reality is only half are in the top half. I worked with a group of medical doctors, and I said, you know, my research has proven that 50% of all medical doctors have graduated in the bottom half of their medical school class. I'm laughing about that. Yeah. Two of them raised their hand and told me it's impossible. <laughs> I said, I'm glad you're not a statistician. Yeah, there's a reason they didn't go into accounting or finance. <laughs> really? Yeah. Well, so the first part of this is uh, we get this internal and external validation issue. We think that just because I think I did a great job, the world should recognize this. Mm -hmm. And then we're angry or disappointed or bitter because they don't. To me, you really need to separate internal and external validation. Now, again, let me give you an example. Amazon.com. Last time I looked, there are 32.8 million books on Amazon.com. Now, how many books do you need to sell to be in the top half in any one year? I think the number is two. Two. Wow. 16 million sold zero or one. Now, all right, I've actually had a book that's been number one in all of Amazon. I've sold two and a half million books. Do I really think that my books are better than those other 16 million books that sold nothing? Not at all. I'm not that arrogant. I'm sure there are thousands of books far better than anything I've written than no one ever bought. Well, there's two issues. One, I want to write a good book because it makes me feel good and I'm proud of it and gives me internal satisfaction. Mm-hmm. I have no illusion, though, that writing a good book means that the book is a bestseller. When my book, uh, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, came out, the first year it came out, it was a huge seller. It was tied with another book that year called Dog the Bounty Hunter. <laughs> well, in their mind, Dog and I were the same, right? We're peers, me and the dog. Well, <laughs> I had a reality TV show, if you've ever seen him, it's hilarious. Yeah, we're, we're tied. Well, we sold the same number of books. In their mind, we're, we're peers. Two different issues, but to me, they're both important in different ways. You want to get internal validation to feel good about yourself, to be proud, to feel a sense of meaning, enjoying what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Very good. On the other hand, don't ignore external validation, because if you do, you're writing a great book that no one buys. Yeah. And if you really want to reach people, being a martyr or victim doesn't help. Right. Now, the other half of the coin, which is not as common is the imposter syndrome. Because I'm seeing here- the Imposter a two, syndrome. A, a two by two matrix. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and so this is yeah, the yeah. not and, significant. Yeah, it's good. Two by two matrix. Yeah. At one level is I'm praised by the world yep. and I don't deserve it. I don't mm. think I did a great job. That's yep. the imposter syndrome. Mm. The imposter syndrome is, well, I feel bad because the world gives me more credit than I deserve. I, I don't feel bad about that. I do believe the world gives me more credit than I deserve. I'm not, I've got, how much credit do I get in my life? You've seen my trophy guys here. Yeah. I've got more awards than I can count. Well, I don't, I'm not arrogant enough to believe I actually am the best coach in the world for 20 years. How does anybody know that? They didn't follow me around, watch me coach people. On the other hand, I'm fine that I was recognized as the best coach in the world. Why? Gave me more power, more status, more ability to do things, meet more interesting people, have a bigger impact on the world, adopt people, do all kinds of good stuff. Yeah. That if I weren't famous, no one would care. No one would care. So to me, these two factors are different. Internal validation, external validation, both important. Where we mess up is when we get confused and we think they're supposed to align. 
that's when we feel at one level like an imposter. I'm getting more than I deserve. That's bad. Or feel like a victim. I'm not getting what I deserve. That's bad. Mm -hmm. So again, the goal is they're two different things. It's good to go for both if they make sense. Now, let me give you another way to look at this uh, concept, impressing people. A common self-help, don't try to impress anyone, blah, blah, blah. Well, bad advice. Sometimes it's very important to impress people. You're selling something, you have a customer. You want to impress the customer. If you don't, they do not buy. This yeah. is the way life works. Well, impressing people, again, looking at a matrix, at one level, you don't try to impress people, yet impressing them wouldn't help you achieve your mission. Smart. Why waste time trying to impress people? They're not going to help you help your mission of having a great life. You're not help you help others be happy. Why bother? See, a lot of times, then you have the other trying to impress people that's not going to change your life. Facebook. You see people spend hour after hour on Facebook trying to impress people. Why? Yeah. What? Well, and on that point, I just learned, I, I had no idea this happened, that people will sometimes, some people will make posts and if they don't get a certain amount of likes in a certain period, they'll take them down. Because yeah. it's better for them to have no post than a post with only a few likes. Oh, they feel ashamed. I was like, that had never occurred to me. <laughs> it's a contest. Wow. Well, so uh, uh, today, millions of people waste their time yeah. trying to impress people who, number one, don't care. And number two, it's not going to help them have a great life. Then the, the other, though, the other is pretty much equally bad. That's not trying to impress people when impressing them would help you have a great life. That's ego. I'm above that. In the first case of people are, are trying to impress people who don't care. Right. Or, or I suppose this or not, question. not important in their life. Or not so. important in their life. Yeah. What do you think is the basis of that? I think, again, it's ego in a different way. It's trying to look good, brag, show off, be impressive, get, get love and affection that whatever that, you know, it's, but the reality is it doesn't usually work. Right. Because, I mean, you've been around me before. I always tell stories about I need someone to call me every day because I'm too incompetent and weak to do it by myself. People like me more, not less. Well, I think people recognize themselves in that. Exactly. Right? <laughs> and, you know, I mean, nobody has these perfect kids and perfect vacation and perfect family and perfect food and all that stuff that you see on Facebook. It's depressing. The more hours you spend on that stuff, the more depressed you are with your life. I think for two reasons. One... You look at everybody else's life and you say, gee, my life isn't that good. My kids aren't that pretty and they act like little monsters half the time. And, you know, I didn't really love our vacation. I was pretty miserable a lot of times and my life isn't that good. On the other hand, too, you're posting that's nonsense. It doesn't make you really feel good because, you know, it's not really you. Yeah. You're thinking, you're not stupid. You know, that's not really my life. I'm, yeah. I'm presenting a fake life. Yeah. I mean, there's that. And, and, and I think what, what goes along with that is this idea of not, I think, at least this is my experience. And I suspect as many other people's experience who do that as well is that I'm not in the present. When I'm doing that, I'm not in the present moment because right. I'm thinking, how am I, what filter am I going to use? And what, how am I going to caption this? And right. what time of day am I going to put in all this? And so it's like, I'm not even experiencing life. No, I'm, I'm living a fake life. Yeah. Nexus IT helps companies of all sizes manage their information technology with hyper-responsive, white-glove IT support and services to handle the most basic tasks, like monitoring and maintenance, to the more complex projects like digital transformation. Visit their website at nexusitc.net. The other, though, is very interesting. A story in the book is one of the people you know from our 100 coaches I was randomly at a bar and waiting for someone, and sitting next to her was an actor. 
And he was talking about being an actor. And he said, oh, have you met other actors? And oh, yes. She said, I, I went to acting school with Robert De Niro. And he said, I was really a much better actor than Bob. But he said, I didn't want to play the game. He did. Learning point, play the damn game. Play the game. Yeah, or at least don't complain about it after if or you don't. Don't complain. Yeah. Don't complain. <laughs> but what happened is Robert De Niro has the opportunity to influence millions of people. He doesn't. Yeah. Well, Robert De Niro said, I'm going to go for external validation. Smart. This guy said, I'm above external validation. No, you aren't. Yeah. In fact, you're too proud to go for external validation because you think you're so good, you're above that. So your own ego is really what's killing you here. In both cases, they're ego problems, but different variations of ego problems. So in, in one ego problem is I'm going to show off and try to impress people who don't care, which is a complete waste of time. And the other ego problem is I'm too good to impress people that I should be impressing, mm. which is equally bad. So the important point is put your time and energy in marketing in a way that's aligned with having a great life. So you think, look, this person is important. If I make a positive impression on this person, it's really going to help me help others and have a great life. Do it. If you think, these people don't care. Why am I showing off? Yeah. It's not going to help me or them. Don't do it. It's pretty simple. Yeah, that makes sense. So if I'm following your train of thought, so far we're through the first two parts of this book. Mm -hmm. I heard you say there were four. Is that right? So there's two. Those okay. are the main two. Those yes. are the main. And tell me again, when will, when will it be released? Probably this summer. Okay. Next summer. Yeah. 2020. Cool. It'll be a while. Who is the intended reader? The intended reader would be pretty much anybody who's a professional. My books, 90% um, college graduates, two thirds uh, graduate degrees. So my readers, and I'm not saying I intentionally want them to be my readers, but they just happen to be my readers. My readers are mostly professionals, managers, entrepreneurs, people like that. Hmm. That's one thing that I want to ask you about which is client selection. Hmm. And this is maybe turning to the discussion of coaching. And Marshall, I've learned so much from you as, Thank a, you. as a coach. And I'm really grateful for the chance to do that. But I want to ask, let me start with this question. Okay. What's your philosophy of coaching? Well, again, the first thing is, I learned something from Paul Hersey, my old mentor. Paul Hersey said, use operational definitions. When you say, I'm using this word, it means such and such to me. Don't pretend your definition is better than someone else or worse. And also don't get into semantic pissing contests. Don't sit there and say, my definition of leadership or management coaching is better than someone else's. Why? It's not necessarily better. It's just different. So when I use the term coaching, I'll talk about what I do. My mission is helping successful leaders achieve positive long-term change in behavior. That's what I do for themselves, their people, and their teams. Now, other people do different types of coaching, which is perfectly okay. Other people do life coaching. They do career coaching. They do communications coaching. They do all kinds of coaching. Well, I'm not making some case that my coaching is, quote, better than theirs. It's just different. So when I say coaching for me, that's what I'm talking about. And back to client selection, as you know, in my own coaching, I typically don't get paid if my clients don't get better. Which is amazing. Which is that, amazing. That you invest 12 to 18 months well, or more. Well, you're familiar with one case where I didn't get paid, if you think about it. We'll talk about that later. But anyway, I don't get paid if my clients don't get better. And better is not judged by me or them. It's judged by everyone around them. Yeah. Well, 
you have to believe in what you're doing to have this system. Yeah, for now, sure. The key to my success is client selection. You've met a lot of my clients. Pretty amazing. Spectacular people. Well, they're dedicated, they're hardworking, and they want to get better. Years ago, Alan Mulally, I spent the least amount of time coaching him as anyone. He improved the most. So uh, I made a chart between a one dimension it was called time spent with Coach Marshall Goldsmith, and it was called improvement, and it seemed to be a clear negative correlation between <laughs> spending time with me and getting better. So I thought, well, that's humbling. So I go talk to my friend Alan. So I said, Alan, what should I learn about coaching from you? He said, two lessons. Lesson one, your biggest challenge as a coach is customer selection. If you pick the right customer, your coaching process will always work. You pick the wrong customer, your coaching process will never work. And he said, number two, never make the coaching process about yourself and your own ego and how smart you think you are. Make about the great people you work with and how proud you are of them and how hard they work, not how hard you work. Well, that changed my life. And after that, I my whole focus on coaching is work with great people. And I've learned as a coach, you work with I work with great people, my coaching process always works. They have to have courage. They have to have the courage to look in the mirror. They have to have humility to admit they can improve. They have to have the discipline to do the hard work required to get better. If they have the courage, humility, and discipline, this process always works. And if they don't, I'm wasting my time. Well, my whole job is great customers. Now, why did I always get ranked number one coach in the world? One reason is I get the best customers. And they're pretty high profile. They're extremely high profile, and they talk about it. Yeah. They all brag about me. That's pretty awesome. That's fantastic. Well, that's it. And so, you know, I've got client after client after client who says good things about me. That's why I always got ranked top coach in the world. I make no pretense that I'm better than the other coaches. I do think, though, I got better clients. Yeah. <laughs> I got the best clients in the world. Very strong argument for that, for sure. You've met a lot of them. Yeah. Not only, yeah. by the way, not only are they high profile and successful, but how about nice? Incredibly nice. In fact, meeting Alan Mulally, just meeting him was one of the great insights of my life to yeah. see how nice, how humble, how <laughs> friendly, how warm to think, you know, a man like that or a human like that can successfully lead a massive organization like Ford or Boeing is, is very humbling. Hey, have you met Frances Hesselbein? I have. Oh my goodness. How about her? She's incredible. Oh. Yeah. Amazing woman. Yeah. Just so much heart and kindness and humble, uh, yet winner of the Presidential Medal of Freedom. You met Jim Kim. Yeah. Same thing. Humble, nice guy. So I think the key is if you work with great people as a coach, you win. Yeah. And don't make it about yourself. Yeah. The biggest problem I've had in coaching and with every coach I've ever trained, including me, ego of the coach. Yeah. Ego. We want people to get better so we can look at that mirror and feel good about who? Me, me, yeah. me, me, me. Yeah, he got better because of me. Oh, they're successful because of me. Let's talk a little more about me, 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 me. Yeah. It's hard to get over that and realize, no, it's not really about me, me, me. It's about them. How can we get over that? Getting paid for results helps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. And your model is your model is maybe unique from a, what a lot of coaches do because you do the stakeholder-centered coaching where, as you're saying, it's the people around the client right. who determine. And so it's very, it is very objective from that oh, standpoint. Yeah. And it's, it's humbling because that convinced you very quickly it's not about me because, yeah. you know, I've worked with people that didn't get better at all. And, you know, I'm the same coach, right? Yeah. It's not about me. So let me ask you this. When it comes to, okay, I love how clear you are about what you do. 
right? And when in your book, what got you here won't get you there. You talk about, you know, you're not a strategy coach. You're not a lot of other coaches. Like your coaching, as you just said, is about helping successful people achieve this lasting behavioral change. How did you get that clarity for yourself that that was the coaching that you wanted to do that you would do? Well, to start with, there was nothing called coaching when I started doing this. There was no field of coaching. What what year was this? Like the 70s? Um, I started doing this, yeah, way back when, 40 years. There was no field 40 years ago yeah. called coaching. Yeah, There was no coaching. So what happened? How did I get into leadership development? I got into leadership development because my mentor, Paul Hersey, I got to meet him and I followed him around and he was kind enough to let me, I mean, I mean I'm mean, i not so arrogant. I didn't know my place and his place. He was the most highly paid guy in the world in our field at the time. So I was a kid. So I'm following him around and, and learning how to try to do what he does. One day he got double booked. He said, can you do what I do? I said, I don't know. I said, he said, I'm desperate. Can you do this? I don't know. He said, I'll pay $1,000 for a day. I was making $15,000 a year. I said, I'll give it a shot. I did a program for the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. They were incredibly angry when I showed up because I wasn't him. But I got ranked first place of all the speakers. Hmm. After that, they called Paul up and said, send Marshall again. He said, you want to do this again? I said, sign me up, coach. Well, that's how I got into leadership development. I ended up going to work with him. And then coaching, same accidental way. There's a CEO, and I'm a pioneer in 360-degree feedback. So we did this custom feedback, and he said, I'll get this kid working for me, young, smart, dedicated, hardworking jerk. He said, it'd be worth a fortune to me if I could change his behavior. So I said, I like fortunes. Maybe I can help him. He said, I doubt it. I said, maybe we know. I came up with an idea. I'll work for a guy for a year. If he gets better, pay me. He don't get better, it's free. See us, it's sold. Welcome to executive coaching. Wow. And what was your feed? Do you recall on an engagement like that? So that was back then. That was a long time ago, $75,000. Wow. So on the other hand, my fee, if he didn't get better, was zero. Zero, yeah. So with that... Let me tell you how that money-back guarantee thing, yeah. where I got inspired for that. I was 14 years old back in Valley Station, Kentucky. We were very poor, and the roof was leaking. And so we had to get the roof fixed because the house was going to get ruined. So my dad hires Dennis Mudd to put on the roof. Dennis Mudd, then my dad has me help Dennis to save money. So I'm the assistant helper of the roofer, Dennis Mudd. So, you know, Dennis Bud's a nice guy, worked very hard, uh, tries to build a great roof. And at the end of the time, you know, he had, tried to teach me as best he could. He, he goes to my dad, Bill, and he says, Bill, I want you to inspect the roof. If that roof is of high quality, I want you to pay me. And if not, it's all free. Now, I, I looked at Dennis Mudd. This guy was poor. And I thought, you know, he's poor, but he's not cheap. Number two, he's got class. And when I was 14, I said, I want to be like Dennis Mudd when I grow up. Wow. So my idea, get paid for results, Dennis Mudd. And I've never had as much integrity as Dennis Mudd. Why? If I don't get paid, life goes on. I've got plenty of stuff. Dennis Mudd, he was hungry. He didn't get paid. He didn't get dinner. And so I thought, man, this guy's got class. I want to be like Dennis Mudd. So I, I wrote an article about that, and a, a guy sent me an email, and he said, um, I was small business guy of the year in Kentucky when Dennis Mudd quit putting on roofs. He drove a school bus, and he would talk to me after driving the school bus and really inspired me. So, I mean, here's a guy. He wasn't some fancy coach or big deal, but he changed a few lives, changed my life. Yeah, that's cool. So God bless Dennis Mudd. Yeah, that's, that's neat. Or the Dennis Mudds of the world. So tell me about the one time you didn't get paid. Oh, there's been more than one time. But uh, the one notable time was uh, I was coaching this guy who got a degree in psychology. 
and he fancied himself to be a very deep psychologist, right? So basically, he used the entire exercise to point out why everyone else had problems. And that he did a little psychoanalysis of them and what's wrong with them. And then he finally got into what's wrong with me. And I'm going, well, okay, okay, this is not pleasant. And you're not going to get better. And I just threw in the towel and said, this is not going to work. You know, I'm sorry. I mean, you know, maybe someone can help you, but I'm not. And, you know, obviously, you know more than I do. So why am I wasting my time here? His problem was uh, humility. I can't, see, I can't help somebody change if they're perfect. He thought he was perfect. Yeah. Uh, okay, fine. Why am I here? There was no point for me to be there. So that's a good case study of, as a coach, this is hard. A lot of times people give me pushback and say, it's easier for you to say with this money back guarantee, you got, you're rich. Yeah, but I wasn't always rich. I did it when I wasn't rich. Number two, you can bill a lot more if you get paid for results. Clients will pay you a lot more because they know they're getting something for what they pay for. So I would just say it's worth considering for coaches. It takes a lot of courage to do it, but it keeps you also centered. It keeps you focused on what matters. You realize I'm not here to be loved. I'm not here to try to make my clients feel good. I'm not here to waste time. I'm basically here to get results. And if I get results, that's great. And if I don't, um, I don't get paid. Yeah. Back to earned life. I feel like I earned it. Every time I got paid, I earned it. I think so. Yeah. It makes sense. I mean, and it's very deliberate. It's very thoughtful. And, and I admire that a lot. Let me ask you this. Why is it so hard for so many people to, to change? In my book, Triggers, I talk a lot about that. Change is incredibly difficult. And that's going to be another theme in my new book as well. I'm going to, if you don't mind, ramble around a little bit on this one. But the first one is, in Triggers, I talk about the delusions we have that keep us from changing. And I think I have 17 or something. And why don't we change? Well, a lot of reasons. One is uh, we believe the planner is the same as the doer. That planner who wakes up in the morning planning to go on the healthy food diet is not that hungry doer looking at the chocolate cake at night. Our planner is not our doer. And when we make plans to change, we don't realize that guy making a plan is not the same as that guy looking at the cake. Those are two different people. One of my favorites is... Uh, uh, why don't we change? Is it's what I call it's a special day. And I'm going on that diet, but it's my birthday, my mother's birthday, my kid's birthday, somebody's birthday. Well, we have a gift of anytime we don't want to do something, we can make it a special day. Another reason we don't change is the high probability of low probability events. We never plan on a low probability event. You don't plan the computer's going to break or traffic accident or your aunt dies. Somebody's going to quit. Somebody's going to quit. We never plan because we never, because by definition, it's low probability. On the other hand, there are a million low probability things that can throw you off track. And we plan every day as if none of them are going to happen. Yeah. That this is going to be a perfect day with none of these events that are going to happen today. And so that's another reason. The biggest reason people don't change, though, is what I call the dream. The dream sounds like this. You know, I'm incredibly busy right now given pressures of work and home and new technology that follows me everywhere and emails and voicemails and competition, I, I feel about as busy as I ever have. Sometimes I feel overcommitted. I don't tell others this, but every now and again, my life feels just a little bit out of control. Yet, you know, I'm working on some very unique and special challenges right now, and I, I think the worst of this is going to be over in about four or five months, and after that, I'm going to take two or three weeks and get organized and spend some time with the family and begin my new healthy life program. And after that, 
everything is going to be different and it, and it will not be crazy anymore. <laughs> have you ever had that dream? I've ha- I I have that dream more often than I care to admit. And, and this is totally the I'll be happy when. This is the great exactly. Western disease right yeah, there. Yeah, it's yeah, someday it's all going to be okay. Yeah. Well, that that day doesn't show up. I mean, one guy you met is Rob Nail, who's president of Singularity, said the pace of change you're experiencing today is the slowest pace of change you will ever experience for the rest of your life. That was an aha moment for me. Yeah, and just make peace. It's yeah. not slowing down out there. It's yeah. only speeding up. Yeah. So let me ask you a few questions. So this week, I'll be hosting a coach training program Wonderful. Of, of my own, largely inspired by you and what oh, you've thank created. thank you so much. Yeah, with the MG100. So I want to ask just a few questions. Yeah, before we go on. Have your listeners know what the MG100 even is? No. Let me explain it. Let's talk about that. Yeah, and then we'll go back to your coaching program. Okay. Yeah, the MG100, because we've referred to it two or three times. Yeah. What is it? Well, I went to a program called Design the Life You Love. It was put on by a woman who's, you know, Aisha Bursell, a wonderful woman, one of the world's top designers. And she said, who are your heroes? My heroes were very kind and generous people who are great teachers. Peter Drucker, Paul Hersey, Francis Selselbein, Alan Mulally, Jim Kim. You've met several of these people. She said, why don't you be, and they never charged me money. She said, why don't you be more like them? I decided to adopt 15 people, teach them all I know for free. Only price is when they get old, they have to do the same thing. So I made a little selfie video, put it on LinkedIn. Said, my name is Marshall. I got ranked number one leadership thinker, number one coach, number one book. I'm going to adopt 15 people, teach them all I know for free. And the only price is when you get old, do the same thing. I thought maybe 100 people would apply. So far, over 18,000 people have applied. And I've adopted, including you, about 180 people now. And, and it's been an amazing process. I had no idea the impact this would make on a lot of people. It's changed my life. Well, talk about some of the people you've met and how that's impacted you and them. Well, we've talked about a few already with Alan yeah. and Francis and President Jim Kim. So those are, those are a few people who've become some of my heroes. Yeah you know, already. And then so many of the other coaches who are in the program, and, and to be honest, you know, so many of them are established. People like Whitney Johnson, right. people like Dory Clark, Peter Bregman, Mark Thompson, right. you know, of course, Aisha. Yeah. There's so many, David Noor. Yeah. You know, Amazing I feel, people. Yeah. That they're, and, I, and I could go on and on, but it's just, it, it's really neat to me how it's a very diverse group, mm-hmm. yet what they have in common is, I think... I hear the judgment here, the positive judgment, but very good people. Yeah. And they're dedicated to using what they know in service to others. Yeah. It's been an amazing experience. And I'm going to talk about that in my new book, The Earned Life, because it's the idea of creating your own community. And that is a created community. And I've talked to a lot of people about it and said, why is this so important to you? Some of the things we talk about, people are lonely. Yeah. Which is amazing that we're more connected than ever by technology, yet it seems to only maybe amplify the loneliness that we feel. Well, and the other thing is there's this concept of in the past, you didn't have a voice. Today, everyone has a voice. And a lot of times that is a critic voice. Mm. So many people feel they're judged constantly, just over and over critiqued and judged. Being in an environment where you feel accepted, not judged, loved, welcome, special, I had no idea. It is a big deal to a lot of people. Yeah. Now I've got one goal for you though. What is it? Same thing. Yeah. To do the same, to do the same thing. That's Create it. My own. That's 101. It. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Which I know I, I told you when I wrote my application letter about 
the Japanese proverb, the apprentice outstrips the master. That's pretty presumptuous, but I've got a few decades. <laughs> you got a ways. But you I'm working it. on it. I am actively working on it. It's not a someday thing for me. That's good. But yeah, which again, back to this coaching program is part of that. Of course. So, you're doing it now. Yeah, that's right. So this will actually be the fifth one I've done here in, 20, in 2019. Wonderful. We're, we're here and recording this in, in Marshall's home in California in December of 2019. And one of the things that that I'm doing is I'm, I'm endeavoring to help. One of the things I say to people who want to be coaches is, look, you don't need any kind of certificate or license to be a coach. It, right. It's remarkable to me that if you want to be a real estate agent or an esthetician, right. you know, or a therapist, there's a lot of training, but to be a coach, anybody can call themselves a coach or a master coach. Right. Right. And, and so on the one hand, I think people think there's some big mystery that they have to learn before they can effectively coach others. And although like any skill, there are in fact principles, they're, they're not mysterious, mm. right? So one of the things that, that I start with is, is building rapport. Yeah. It's just, and, and so that's one thing I wanna ask you about, w whether it's when you meet someone for the very first time or at the beginning of any, any individual coaching session, mm -hmm. how do you go about building rapport? See, one thing I think I do and I'm not saying people should do it, but it's what I do. I have very clear focus. And I don't try to make people do anything. I don't try to sell people on something. I don't try to inspire people or motivate people. What I say is, this is who I am. This is who I am. This is what I do. Mm -hmm. Now, I love it. On the other hand, I'm not saying it's for you. Right. If it is, great. If it's not, it's not. That's okay, too. I'm not here to force you to do anything. So that way, for me... I don't really have to work a lot on building rapport because, again, it's selection. Hmm. I'm only working with people who actually want to be there. Yeah, They want to do this. They like the concept. They like me. And I'm not kind of making anybody do anything. So I'm often asked the question, how do I inspire people to change? The answer is I don't. I don't inspire people to change. I'm not saying others couldn't or it's a bad idea. I'm just, that's not what I do. I'm not in the sales business or the inspiration business. I'm in the helping great people get better business who are already inspired and already want to get better. And they don't need me to give them motivational speeches. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so that's who I'm working with. So for me, rapport is kind of a different one in that. The other thing is, I think you've been around my clients. Basically, I like these people. They're my friends. Yeah. And you've met many of these people. I haven't charged them a bill for 30, 40 years. It's, it's pretty remarkable. It doesn't matter. Yeah. I don't, they're still my friends. Yeah. Well, yeah. and I love one of the things that, that I've heard you say, what, what I captured your words as, I'm not here to help you be the, per I, I'm sorry, I'm here to help you be the person you want to be as long as it's not immoral, illegal, or unethical. That's right. Right. And I love that non-judgment in right. that, that you just accept and you're not in the business of evaluating, you know, what people want. Exactly. You're there to support them in getting what they want. Exactly. And, you know, if you look at my job, <clears throat> I love my job. But for example, I just gave a talk in Russia in front of 50,000 people. I loved it. Had a great time. For a lot of people, that would have been horrifying. Yeah. They would have been miserable, you know, worried, anxious, upset. Well, it's not for everyone. And it's not that it's good or bad. It's just good for me. Yeah. This is one thing Mark wanted me to ask you about, by the way, or suggested when I asked him. Is this the program where you invited people to do the feed forward process? Yes, yeah, I did this. So will you talk just for a, a moment about what feed forward is and then how did it go in Russia? <laughs> okay, well, feed forward is a key part of everything I do. Feed forward is 
you learn to ask for input. In feed four, you're in two roles. So let me pretend I'm in Russia. I say, okay, you're all going to be in two roles. Role number one is called learn as much as I can. And role two is called help as much as I can. Now, you've already thought before this conversation about what is one thing you want to change to help you become the person you want to be. And again, you pick whatever you want to pick. I'm not here to tell you who you want to be. I'm not here to tell you what you want to change. You tell me, if I get better at this one thing, it's going to help me achieve the goals I want to achieve. I want everybody to pick one thing. And then I say, if you can't think of anything to pick, pick humility. But we all got something we can get better at, right? Pick something. Everybody picks one thing. Then I say, in feed forward, you're in two roles. Role one is called learn as much as I can. Then I ask, are there smart people in this room? Everyone says, yes. If you had a chance to learn from these smart people, would you like to do that? Yes. Second role is called help as much as you can. Are there nice people in this room? Yes. If you had a chance to help these nice people, would you like to help them? Yes. We're either learning from these smart people, which is good, or helping these nice people, which is also good. Therefore, it's all good. And the, the rules of feed forward are rule number one, no feedback about the past. You can't talk about the past, bring up things from the past. You can't change the past anyway. Only ideas for the future. And rule two is you can't judge or critique ideas. So you treat the idea like a gift. If people give you a gift, you don't say stinky gift or bad gift, don't like your gift. You just say thank you. You don't have to promise to do it all. You just promise to listen and do what you can. So everyone says, my name is, I want to get better at. Give me one or two ideas. person does. The other person says, my name is, I want to get better at. Give me a couple of ideas for the future. Then they shake hands, raise your right hand, look around the room. Someone else comes over and talks to you. You do it over and over again until I say stop. It takes about four or five minutes. I have done this all around the world. I've done this with six people who work together. And in Russia, I did this with 50,000 people who, by the way, only 20% spoke English. Huh. They had simultaneous translations, 20% spoke, and that people love it. Yeah, They love it no matter what country I'm in. It works across cultures. And then I say, why do you, give me one word to describe this. People say it's positive, useful, helpful. One word is fun. Yeah. Now, what's the last word you think to describe any feedback activity? Fun. Somebody calls you in the <laughs> office. I'm a feedback I'd like to share with you. You go, fun, fun. <laughs> fun is it's the last word. It's a different F word. Yeah, yeah. Usually. You don't say fun, right? Well, people think this is fun. Well, why? It's about the future. It's not about the past. There's no judging. It's creative. It's, it's collaborative. Creative. You got nothing to lose. Yeah. So I and love it. And it's it's a key centerpiece for my coaching process, as well as a key centerpiece for my teaching. And let me tell you what else that's great about it. In Russia, they had like six speakers and I was fifth. These people are burned out. They've been, I mean, the speakers are good. Arnold Schwarzenegger, they have a lot of great people. But, you know, talk after talk after talk, they get burned out yeah. to stand up, walk around, interact, get involved. They loved it. Yeah. They loved it. And why? It's, it's a great thing to use as a speaker. As a speaker, it's also a great thing to use. Oh, by the way, one thing I'd like to volunteer, article about Feed Forward, article about my coaching process, any articles people would like, I'm happy to send you a group of them and then they can get a hold of you and I give it all away anyway. So you can copy, share, download, duplicate all of my articles. I've got 300 videos online. So please feel free to use any of my stuff any way you wish. Well, well, thank you. And I'll be sure specifically with this one to put the thing about Feed Forward in the show notes. Yeah. And then I invite people to contact me directly to take sure. you up on that invitation. That's great. It's great. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening to part one of my talk with Marshall. Tune in again on the next episode for part two as we continue our conversation. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, 
where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education or who live in conflict zones. There's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at brianmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com. 